Welcome to episode 37 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I'm your host, retired FBI Supervisory Special Agent Darren Mott, and this podcast is going to be all about the Colonial Pipeline. So first off, I want to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to my podcast. Please feel free to go on iTunes or wherever and, and leave it a review or a couple stars if you're so inclined. Tell your friends. If you came to this podcast um, hoping to hear about all the technical um, parts of the Colonial Pipeline hack, you're in the wrong place. I'm not going to talk about any of that stuff. I'm going to kind of talk about is more of the what's it mean to everyday people stuff because that's where I like to try to focus these podcasts on what does it mean to you as an individual out there living your life and not thinking about cybersecurity 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And are there things you can do to protect yourself? Because there's always things that you can learn from these particular intrusions that ideally you can incorporate into your life to lower the cyber risk overall. Later in the podcast, I'm going to talk with Scott Ogham bomb about uh, the Colonial Pipeline and the Cyber Secure Mindset and a couple other things uh, related to that nature. But before I get to him, I want to talk about a few articles that I've seen over the last week or so uh, regarding the Colonial Pipeline. I apologize for not having a podcast last week. Uh, My son got married, so congratulations to Patrick and Elizabeth Mott, who are enjoying their honeymoon in Disney World this week. Um, But I was preoccupied with that, so wasn't quite able to get around to doing a podcast. So hopefully you'll take that as my my, mea couple for uh, taking last week off. But here we are. And I also wanted to kind of look and see how the Colonial Pipeline thing played itself out, what news articles came from all of it, and then be able to to comment on that. So a couple of things. The first thing is be questionable what you see in the media. The media does not go deep into these particular type of cases to really give you a lot of information regarding the nature of these attacks. They'll talk about the basic parts and they'll regurgitate things they've heard from other journalists and other experts in the cyber field, uh, but they don't really dig too deep into it and look at causal effects and ways these could have been prevented and and, and things of that nature. So, um, you know, read a lot of different articles Listen to a lot of different podcasts if you want to know more aspects on the technical nature of this particular ransomware attack. I mean, there's, there's plenty of podcasts that will do that for you. But I wanted to focus on a couple of things I've seen over the last couple of days and just make points about that. So the first one I'm going to talk about is industry best practices. So if we step back for a second and take a look at the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, this was a target of opportunity, meaning do I think that the group that targeted Colonial Pipeline said, ooh, let's get Colonial Pipeline? No. I think they had a listing of email addresses, and they just blasted out a bunch of different Spearfish emails, hoping someone would click a link or uh, open an attachment, and they would get into the network that way, and I think that's probably what happened. And herein lies my biggest problem with these type of events, be it the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack, be it the Broward County school ransomware attack, be it the Huntsville City Schools ransomware attack. We always hear about the the ransomware on the front end. We never hear what happens at the back end. What was the postmortem? What happened? Who did what? How do we know how to protect ourselves? What vulnerability was exploited? We never see that. And so... As a re- this was not as a result of the Colonial Pipeline hack because it's had to be going on for a while, but uh, President Biden signed an executive order last week about cybersecurity. It was fairly lengthy as far as executive orders go. And at the end of the day, the requirements within it are focused on federal entities with some 
tie-ins to private sector groups as far as being able to do contracts with the federal government. I'm not going to get into de- deep details on that executive order other than it's just one more executive order for one more problem, which probably won't really fix anything at the end of the day. But there was one part of that that was interesting that had to do with the creation of the Cyber Safety Review Board, which is supposed to be like the National Transportation um, NTSB, whatever S stands for, uh, National Transportation Shoot, I, you know, I, I should know off the top of my head. I, I, sorry, I, I forgot what the S is. Someone can email me, tell me. I'm sure I'll figure it out in, in, before we're done with this. But so similar to what the NTSB does with plane accidents and look at the causal effects and does a report. Hopefully, maybe something will come of that where this can happen. The problem is you have to get private sector companies who become victims to participate in sharing the information they glean from these attacks to this review board. There is no mandate in an executive order that can in be impact or imparted upon a private sector company. So you're gonna ha- we're going to have to rely on the goodwill of these companies to share information. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I think this executive order had the whole private public sector partnership sharing, intelligence sharing partnership, which all of these things do. Every president since Bush has talked about private public sector sharing, and we all try to do it, yet no one ever seems to do so. So again, if we can get the politicians and the bureaucrats out of the way, or at least use their abilities to enable those people within the cyber world who can actually do something, that would be the way to go. But maybe more on that a little later. So, again, the executive order creates this cyber, cyber safety review board, which will hopefully give some postmortems, and maybe that will happen. Uh, I hope so, but I am, am somewhat uh, skeptical on that. Another thing I saw, and this happened today, Melissa Hathaway, who if you've been around cybersecurity for a while, you've heard her name float around. She's a bureaucrat who's been around Washington for 20 years you know, claiming to be a cybersecurity expert, and she may be very talented at what she does, but she says some stupid stuff, quite honestly. Um, and so she was at the Department of Justice for a while, and then she was in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, as a cybersecurity expert, um, using quotations with my fingers for that. But she said that the U.S. Department of Justice should determine and make clear that paying a ransom is illegal. So she wants to punish the victims. That is her freaking genius idea. Now I can say all these things. I'm pretty sure Melissa Hathaway does not listen to this podcast. So, and I doubt anyone will ever share it with her, but this is the most ridiculous statement I've seen out of everything from colonial pipeline. What she's saying is that if you're a victim of ransomware and you pay the ransom to get your data back because you're going to go bankrupt or you're going to have other sorts of issues, then that should be illegal and you should be charged with the crime. Genius, just freaking genius. That's why I say keep the bureaucrats and politicians out of it. I'm not going to go any deeper into the, her freaking ideas here. But but again, stupid stuff comes out of all of these things, especially when you look at Colonial Pipeline because of the impact it had nationally. You know, gas prices going up, gas stations being um, out of gas. My local gas station had um, the uh, didn't have the premium had the had the basic gas this morning, but the premium and mid range uh, fuels were empty. But at least they had some gas. And I think in a week this will all kind of blow over because everybody all the gas stations will have gas, and we won't really think about it again until the next critical national infrastructure entity gets hit with ransomware, and we'll talk all about these same things again. Yet very little will happen because again. They don't enable the people that can actually do something to be able to do something. Now, ideally, you know, let's talk about dark side, which is the group being blamed for this. And really, quite honestly, if you if again, if reporters did their job, they would report the dark side did not actually pass the ransomware to Colonial Pipeline. They built the ransomware that Colonial Pipeline got hit with, allegedly based on intelligence and reporting that we've seen. 
However, they do ransomware as a service, which means they make the malware available and they basically lease it to what are called affiliate groups that then go and conduct the phishing actions or whatever other capabilities they use to get into systems to deploy the ransomware. And then DarkSide gets a percentage of that. Again, not saying DarkSide is not culpable here, but what I'm saying is they didn't call DarkSide didn't target Colonial. I mean, they were as, appear to be as shocked as anybody else and, and very worried for their lives because of the the nature of this particular ransomware attack. But no one's talking about the group that actually, the affiliate that actually did the ha- hack. I'd really love to hear about that, but I don't think I'm going to I'm going to hear that anytime soon. But what I would do, quite honestly, if I was a politician or a bureaucrat, my, my genius idea would be, hey, look, ransomware as a service is out there for anyone to rent and use. Why don't we go find the dark side group on the dark web using sources, undercover agents, pick a, pick whatever methodology you want to, lease out the ransomware and launch it against Russian assets. That'll piss off the Russians. And then they're going to go look for dark side because dark side is, is a Russian group. They're protected by the Russian government. We can't touch them regardless of what anybody wants to do. Anybody who wants to put anybody in jail, no one's going to jail for this. Um, Colonial is not going to get their $5 million back. And you know, that's just the, the nature of the cybersecurity business currently, but there are ways to be offensive against these entities to do those kind of things. Again, maybe I'll talk more of that, that with Scott in, in here in just a little bit. One other article that I thought was interesting, there's a couple articles, I'm not going to talk about them all. Um, maybe I'll talk a little bit about more of them next week uh, as we do a wrap-up on Colonial Pipeline. But there was an article out of Z, ZDNet.com that was titled Cybersecurity, How Talking About Mistakes Can Make Everyone Safer. And I really think, well, actually that kind of goes to my first point, is understanding um, how these things happen. So that's the wrong article. I did not mean to mention that one. There's actually a better article that I wanted to talk about. Here it is. This is the one I wanted to talk about. So this is actually from the hill.com, uh, which is a political website, but this is a, an interesting article from Alan Gwynn. It's an opinion piece. So it's his opinion, but he makes some good points in this. And the title of it is our cybersecurity industry best practices keep allowing breaches. And that is very true. We pay a lot of money to a lot of people with a lot of great references and a lot of great certifications to protect our networks, yet it's not working. Why is it not working? Again, I don't know. Maybe we'll Scott and I will discuss that here in a little bit. But just reading from his particular um, his article, the hacking at Colonial Pipeline is the latest in a series of breaches that have impacted a long and growing list of other businesses, all ambushed by some individual or group that managed to hack through secure, security, cybersecurity, I'm sorry, through cybersecurity industry best practices. Those are, that's in quotations. And it's only getting worse. Guarding over these critical resources, healthcare providers and government agencies are a veritable army of information security professionals. They sport impressive credentials and certifications like Certified Information System Security Professional, Certified Information System Auditor. Many even have academic credentials, including bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in information security. All of them embrace the latest industry best practices. But you know what? These impressively credentialed professionals are skilled and an art of tedium. They know all about audits and they can absolutely push paper. And that is a great, great set of sentences right there because we do a lot of audits. We write up a lot of different password policy documents, yet somehow, some way, companies still get hit. And it's simply because we're doing it wrong. There's got to be ways to do that better, to do all of this better. And there's probably a lot cheaper ways than buying all sorts of endpoint protection and malware and intrusion detection devices and things like that. Um, But, you know, obviously their jobs are difficult. Yet, you know, 
we're paying a lot of money for a lot of bad things to continue to happen. So with that, uh, I will get off my soapbox on Colonial Pipeline. I'm 12 minutes in. You've probably had enough of me complaining about this at this point. Again, there's more I could talk about, and perhaps again next week uh, um, at my next podcast, I will talk a little bit about it again as we see more of what happens, get more information coming forward, hopefully. But with that, let me bring in Scott. So, back by popular demand, the author of The Secret to Cybersecurity, Protecting Your Family. I'm sure I blew that title already. And the creator of The Cybersecure Mindset, my good friend Scott Augenbaum, joins the Cyber Guy podcast again from his lovely chateau in Nashville. Scott, how's things in Nashville today? Hey, Jared. Thanks for having me again. Uh, last week, this whole thing blew up, and I never like to downplay it. But everybody's making such a big deal about this colonial pipeline. And everyone's asking me, what do I think? And I'm like, this does not surprise me in the least. Except all I see is now everybody's trying to sell a new product or service <laughs> or a widget. Yep. And that's what's lighting up. Hey, if you just would have done this, like, so I'm thinking right now, if I can get a brick with tinfoil, wrap it around, maybe I can sell it to people, and that'll be the solution. Yeah, so let's go back to ransomware. When did ransomware first get started? 2013, 14, you think? What's the time frame? I should have probably, oh, if, I was, if I was prepared, I'd have, I'd have known that by now. But I would say the first time that I ran into it was with a small CPA firm that got hit with ransomware. And this was probably about 2015 or so. And it was pretty wild because nobody knew what to do. The guy couldn't get it encrypt, unencrypted. He didn't know what to do. He had to go out and use these things called Bitcoins uh, because they were holding this stuff ransom. And at the time it was five Bitcoins and that was about the same amount of money which you could uh, take a family of four out to Applebee's for dinner. I mean, Bitcoin was so cheap back then. Mm -hmm. Well, according to CrowdStrike, the history of ransomware, it first cropped up in 2005. But my guess is back then it wasn't quite as effective as it was. I think they even say Bitcoin changed everything because the the problem would always be, I'm sure, before Bitcoin was if you wanted, if you paid the ransom, you could trace the money. Money's always traceable. Bitcoin is not. Yes, now even though Bitcoin's a little bit more mainstream, mm -hmm. it's still impossible to track down these wallets. And I would say probably about, I, as I'm going back, I remember the FBI put together an interagency ransomware prevention guide in the early 2016. And I remember trying to have conversations with a lot of the large private sector partners uh, trying to keep them educated about it. And people really didn't seem too concerned about it. And fast forward to today, it's it's a dumpster fire. That's mm -hmm. all you can describe it. And the big problem that I see, and I've said this on a bunch of other bunch of other podcasts and stuff, is we will hear all about we hear all about when this first happened. I mean, the news cycle was Colonial Pipeline, this Dark Side, blah blah blah. And even though Dark Side it was not really the group that hacked that that put the ransomware on the system, that's a conversation for another time. But you know, everybody's going to get their gas in their gas tanks. No one's going to have any more problems. We're going to stop thinking about Colonial Pipeline, and we'll never find out what was the nature of this the spear because. I'd, I'd be willing to, you know, bet two Bitcoin that it was a spearfish email that re, that started this whole mess. 
Would you agree or would you disagree? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, when I talk to our uh, friends who are involved in intrusion response, it, it still comes back that 90 percent of the attack vector is through an email. And the email is the vector. And then we have unpatched systems. We don't a lot of the organizations don't have visibility. They can't patch things. And then ransomware just takes over and it's running really wild. And we're seeing and I've been seeing things, you know, on one rumor on the streets is major healthcare company was hit with a 60 million dollar ransom. And when the bad guys didn't pay it or when the healthcare company didn't pay it. The bad guys started nuking the system. Well, let's even move beyond Colonial Pipeline, the Washington Metropolitan Police Department. They got in and they got all the source files, and now they're going to release information on confidential sources. I mean, people are going to die from that. Well, and here's the thing. If the cyber criminals have enough, as we'd say in New York, in Yiddish chutzpah, to go in and go after a police agency, who... Who are they not going to go after? I mean, that's going to bring about some real national attention. And then the other thing that I see is everyone's talking about, look, hey, we formed this ransomware task force with the private sector and government agencies. But these are things that we were working on back in cyber in 2007 Mm -hmm. on the cyber national strategy. I just get really kind of... You know, to me, I feel overwhelmed with it because, you know, how do we solve this problem? How do we educate people? What has to happen? I mean, we see a major utility taken down. We see a police agency. Last summer, I mean, does anyone remember? It was all in the news for about six hours. Somebody died as a result of it. And now we just move on to the next thing. Right. And all the schools, all the schools are getting hit and all that kind of stuff. It's, yeah, it's everywhere. And I'm sure that most of these companies that, have, that um, well, I take that back because I, you, I know you were out, of, you were tarpon fishing while you were uh, last week when this is all going down. But you know what, what position Colonial Pipeline did not have in place at the time of this particular incident? A CISO. They, they had fired their CISO months ago and hadn't filled the position. Not to say that that would have, you know, fixed all of their problems, but, you know, most of these entities, Broward County Schools, Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police, AXA, Singapore, which is the healthcare company in Asia that is hit with ransomware now, with they stole three terabytes of sensitive data, so on and so forth. You know, they all have these people with great certifications in place. They can't, nothing, nobody can stop it. But like you said, let's go back to your, your main point. 90% of these occur with a Spearfish email. Spearfish emails only work if someone clicks a link or opens an attachment. So why can't we find out? This is a curious question I have. I don't know if anybody can answer it or will ever answer it. What, do you, what did it look like? What was the email that caused this to occur? Someone has it. Someone knows what it is. You know, what was the link? So at least educate people so they know what it is. Now, well, and even if you do that, I mean, look, could have been from Amazon. It could have been uh, a COVID-19. It could have been just about anything. You know, unless we have that mindset and that mindset enough is not enough, but it's kind of having, you know, the combination. You know, I see one person commented before 
that, hey, listen, you know, prevention is not enough. And I agree prevention is not enough. But you have to start with making people aware of the threats. What is your strategy? How are you going to deal with this? What are you doing to prevent this? And what is not a strategy? A strategy is not throwing massive amounts of money at the problem. A strategy is not saying, hey, look, I'm PCI compliant, I'm HIPAA compliant, I'm high trust compliant. That is not a strategy. It's an overall overreaching plan. And everyone goes, well, we manage risk. Again, that's really, in my opinion, techno babble, because it doesn't matter who you are. The bad guys are going to target your organization. And now with ransomware, we have to assume that if you have ransomware, they stole your information. And it doesn't matter. Everyone goes, hey, there's a higher risk. You know, we're in Huntsville. Uh, It doesn't matter. You know, we're at higher risk than you are in Nashville. And I'm like, look, you all have customer information. Let's just assume nobody has classified information. Mm -hmm. Nobody has intellectual property. You still have customer information. You have employee information. You have payroll information. You have all of this stuff you need to protect it. That's why the conversation needs to be bigger in just preventing ransomware. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and 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 we need you need to look beyond because honestly, let's let's step let's go a, a whole different route here beyond just the ransomware piece. Ransomware is not even in the top five of cyber crimes impacting individuals worldwide. The number one thing is business email compromise. You talk about that all the time. And so we, we hear all about ransomware. Ransomware is bad. We got to be careful about ransomware. It's, it's a pittance to what businesses are losing from business email compromise. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the business email compromise still absolutely out of control today. Um, and, and what are we doing? You know, we realize that, hey, we can secure our stuff with two-factor authentication. We could make sure that we have every safeguard. We can buy the best endpoint solution in the world. But what does it, do, what does not, what does it not take into account? It does not take into account the third party's emails are getting compromised. And in my opinion, the business email compromise is a business process issue that is something that we need to address. Are we training our financial employees to question things? And until we do that, again, another topic we've been talking about since 2015. And the thing that I don't want companies to get all, oh, this is a great time. We got some money. We're going to go buy a product. Mm-hmm. All right. Listen, uh, Understand these, have your policies in place, have your principles in place. And every time that I think it's going to get worse, so it's a game-changing moment. I thought the game-changing moment was the target breach. And then I thought the game-changing moment was the OPM breach. Mm -hmm. And then I thought the game-changing moment was the Equifax breach. And then it just goes on and on and on. And we just move from one thing to another. Right. You know, and just so people don't understand what business email compromise is, essentially a bad actor gets access to legitimate email credentials either within a company or within a third party that does business with a company. 
sends an email like with an invoice or requesting payment and the companies just pay it. I told this story many times, but I had a company call me. They they were victims of a business email compromise that had happened a couple a week or two previously. They had sent out th- they had paid, sent three payments out, and so I asked them how much did you lose two point five million dollars before anyone realized that what they were sending was fraudulent and it was long gone. And it works so well. Mm-hmm. Again, it works so well. And when the big companies lose money, they survive. But when the small companies get impacted with it, they go out of business. Right. And at the end of the day, there's no, there is no technical solution to business email compromise. If you receive an email that looks like it comes from a legitimate vendor that says, here's an invoice for this widget that I always purchase from you once a month, but I need you to send it to this particular bank account this month. What technology stopping that? It's like you said, there is, it's the business. What's your business process to verify that information is real. I don't think companies think about that enough. And, and there are, I'm starting to see some pretty interesting artificial intelligence products that are out there, but that's only for the enterprises. And remember, the enterprises only consist a small part of our economy. What about the small businesses, mm. the nonprofit associations? They don't really have those tools. I just got a, um, talking about the business email compromise. I just got a call from a friend of mine who said, hey, I just got an email from somebody. They said something came out of my account. I'm like, okay. So what did we do? We logged into his email. I logged into the email with him. And he had a GoDaddy email. And very easily, you know, and I always say, hey, do you have two-factor authentication set up? Oh, well, I do now. Okay. <laughs> I do. So we were able to look at his email account and we were able to see on a Tuesday that there were a bunch of logins from all over the world for a six hour point of time. Okay, fine. No dot, no damage. And we looked at his sent box. You know, we looked to see what happened and everything like that. Changed the password, set up the two factor authentication. I said, you're good to go. What do you think? That's pretty good advice, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So here's this. Friday, he calls me up. Somebody during that amount of time read all of his emails, and they were able to intercept an email because they left the folding rule in there, and they were, and he got an invoice from somebody he was supposed to pay it in the amount of $135,000. And that Friday, he got the email that looked like it was coming from his client making a request to make the payment. And what do you think he did? He owed the guy money. He made the payment. And then he realized about five hours later after calling the guy that they never made the change. Luckily, he was able to get his money back. Think about that. I mean, I told him that he needed to take his wife out on a really expensive weekend because he probably was the 10th person that I've met in the past decade by the surefire luck that we were he was able to get that stopped. 
Right. Yeah. If it had been if it had been nineteen more hours, anything past twenty four, you'd be lucky to ever see any part of that. It's crazy. So go on, let's go back to Colonial Pipeline real sec because something else came up, came under my head because after this happened, a couple days after Colonial Pipeline hit. Um, there was an executive order, a 43-page executive order came out that had to do with cybersecurity improvements, some bullcrap that way, whatever. So have you ever found in your experience that government interaction into these matters has been effective in stemming the problem? It was when I was an FBI agent in Nashville. It was very effective (laughs) because I was getting out and had what I called my clients. And I was talking to them and making them read all of this stuff. But if my memory serves me correctly, it was Presidential Directive 63, which was put into law by Bill Clinton, that really got the ball rolling. And if you could look into that. And that was where, at that point in time, that's when we, with the FBI, that formed the National Infrastructure Protection Center back in the day in 1998. Correct. That's that's very good. May 22nd, 1998, Presidential Decision Directive. That's a little different than an executive order, but still whatever. It's a government thing. And it was the, uh, I just just saw the title, Critical Infrastructure Protection. Yes. And here we were back then giving advice to the private sector. Now, I don't know if you've ever pulled up, if you can pull up the solar sunrise video, that is an amazing video that I was using as my propaganda back in 1999 and 2000 or so. And I was showing this video. There wasn't a, yeah, it was a VHS, you know, you'd have to go to a company and we'd sit down and we would play this 20 minute video, which had to do with the first Gulf War attack. And it showed how these two young kids attacked the Pentagon. Three, it was three, three. Yes. Ren and Stempe and another one. Guy from the guy from the anonymizer from Israel. Yes. The Mr. Tannenbaum. (laughs) Yep. Enid. And, uh. And, and here is the point. If you watch that video, you see the director of the National Infrastructure Protection Center in 1999 saying that the government needs to work closer with the private sector to keep the critical infrastructure safe, because critical infrastructure lies within the private sector, not within the federal government. OK, so I don't know. Right. So I don't know if you can, so I have the video. It's, 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 it's exactly titled Solar Sunrise. It's on YouTube. It is 18 minutes and four seconds. So let's see. I, I'm not sure if you can hear it on your end, but I'm just going to kind of kick it off in the middle here. Could halt the flow of transportation, personnel, oh, I've heard and medical it, supplies. I've shown this video. It certainly I mean, this was. This is what I was yeah. doing back in the late 90s and early 2000s. This was original cybercrime, or, or we called it NIPSI, and this is what we were supposed to do to engage the private sector. How many years ago was that, Darren? I mean, what, 22 years ago? Yep. Watch this video, and I and I uh, and, and you should kick it out to your folks. And you will see that the warning signs were in place, and we as a society today have not learned anything from 22 years ago, and I think I'm starting to sound like my grandfather. Yep. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on a part of the clip there. Scott, Scott Larson is talking. I remember, you remember yes. Scott? Yes. And, and, yes. And, and <laughs> this was, have you ever seen this before, Darren? 
Yeah, long, long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah when I first right. got it because because so so Doris Gardner um, worked on Solar Sunrise when she was at the Pentagon. I mean, when, I'm sorry, when she was in Cyber Division before she came to Charlotte. She and what of- was Solar Sunrise? I mean, and if you look at it, and it goes back to what I talk about when we talk about the the four truths to cybersecurity. At this point in time, did the Pentagon, did they get their stuff back? You know, these bad guys got, I shouldn't say bad guys, these kids got illegal access to it. Was law enforcement able to put them in jail? And if you look, no. Can't put minors in jail. Could something (laughs) like this have been prevented? Yes. Still the same principles. Yep. And I'm and sure, go ahead, I'm sorry. Everyone, I highly recommend, this is a great video to go out and watch if you want a little bit of history about what the government was supposed to be doing when it came to critical infrastructure protection. Right, yep, and yeah, right, exactly. And so, so here we, so in addition, obviously, you know, Colonial Pipeline gets all the news now, but what was it, a month ago, two months ago, Oldsmar, the Oldsmar water treatment plant? That was not ransomware, but someone hacked in and had the ability to turn off and change valves. So clearly, our infrastructure was not protect. Was was they identified it in the, you know, twenty two years ago as a problem, and we're not any better off twenty two years ago and twenty two years later. And, and there was a post on uh, LinkedIn uh, from a friend of ours. I don't want to mention his name, but he said that you know there was a survey that said that you know. of the American public does not think that the government is doing an adequate job of, you know, preventing networks from being compromised. And I would like to say if we went back and we interviewed a hundred of our retired friends and we asked them, what percentage of retired FBI, Secret Service, Department of Homeland Security folks who had our job thought that the private sector was doing a good enough job at keeping our information safe? What do you think that uh, survey would show up as? 95%? Yeah. Yeah, because clearly it's, and there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that proves it's not ready. No one's, yeah. I mean, And and it's not about throwing stones. I mean, it's really in the sense that, ladies and gentlemen, and, and, you know, and this is why this is great discussion. We have to collectively figure out how do we educate ourselves? How do we educate people to take the threat seriously and to take steps to adequately protect our infrastructure, our personal infrastructure, our family, our friends, the small businesses, the nonprofits. I handled a lot of um, utility companies. I've spoken at dozens of utility companies, conferences, and I really did not worry about the major utilities within the state of Tennessee. However, the major utilities were only 5% of the attendees. There were 95% were small businesses Mm -hmm. that had small pieces that did not have dedicated information security uh, space. And I just remember going out and having conversations with these folks. So collectively, we have to put our heads together and say, how do we get people to take this threat seriously? Well, I think part of it is 
people need to understand that it's 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 more than just impacting businesses that mean nothing to you. It's coming for your information at some point as well. We, I mean, take the Yahoo data, the Yahoo data breach, 3 billion emails and passwords compromised. So that means chances are most people at some point in their life before 2015 had a Yahoo email because it was the first real web-based free email system. So everybody had one. So your some part of your information is available on the dark web being sold right now, which is why you get so many funky emails from all sorts of spam, spam organizations. But, you know, we don't, we don't worry about it. That was two th- and just think between 2013 when that occurred, how many other breaches did we see where we needed to change usernames and passwords? Oh, yeah. Sure, we had LinkedIn, we had Facebook, we had Marriott, and it's just going through these things and it's just getting that basic level of education. You know, another survey that blows my mind is that only. T- 10% of Gmail users are using two-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. Mind-boggling. That's why, that's why I do this podcast, to try to help get that oh, information no, out there. So that, yep. uh, you do an amazing job of serving the public by sharing your information because people need to know this. People really – and one of the things that I admire about you is, you know, we're not – you're not throwing stones. You're not – we're not building ourselves up with – you know, as former law enforcement, we work so closely with the private sector and trying to get the information and all of my information security brothers and sisters out there, they knew how to keep the company safe, but it always came down to educating the C-suite. Yeah, And that's our only hope is, you know, we can just keep spreading that message out there to get people to realize the threat is real. And I think there are ways to do that. You just need to make it more meaningful to the C-suite when, and if it's more meaningful to the C-suite, then it becomes more meaningful to all the employees because they'll mandate that they read it, but you can't do it by, Hey, here's a two hour information security training. You have to do once a year. You have to parse it out. I think a little bit at a time so that it becomes, um, it's kind of like taking cholesterol medication. You don't take it all at once. You take it a little bit at a time every day to help lower your cholesterol. So if you had a little bit of cybersecurity information once a month for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you're at least constantly engaged in the process. And because cybersecurity and the education around it changes so so much, because, sure, ransomware is a big thing today. What's the big thing next year? We're going to look back on this and say, boy, that 2021 was a lot better cybersecurity-wise than 2022 is turning out to be because – some technology is going to come around that's going to make, you know, and it's not going to use anything new. It's not going to use any kind of new trade craft. It's going to be something that causes some kind of issue that probably could have been prevented without the need to spend a lot of money on technology. But constantly reminding people of here's here's a little bit of knowledge for you this week, you, they'll take it. I, I think they would take it beyond just the workplace into their everyday lives. And that's why I want to come back. I want to talk about one of the projects that I'm working on because I've been trying to change corporate culture for decades. And I'm going to say there's nobody's failed more than I have because I've tried. I've done hundreds, if not thousands of presentations to companies. Uh, And what do I find that's effective if I could reach into somebody's life and teach them how to keep themselves safe at home, keep their parents safe and keep their kids safe? Ah. then you can make a difference. If you're going to go out there and you're going to say, hey, we're going to have a retired FBI guy come to the company and talk for 45 minutes uh, because uh, HIPAA says that we need to have uh, somebody come in and do it, it's going to fail. But if you make it personal, 
you make it meaningful and you teach people how to keep themselves safe, how to keep their family safe. And if you can change their mindset and what are companies made up of, companies are made up of people. And at the end of the day, no matter what, people are going to click on links. But one of the things that I'm talking to and a lot of my CISO friends is they all do not know what to do because they all have cybersecurity awareness training. They all have phishing testing, but they still have about 20% of the population is failing the phishing test five or more times. <laughs> Some companies want to fire those people, but when you have a multinational company with 100,000 people, you can't really fire 20,000 people. You know, so that's some of the solutions that I'm trying to come up with here to be able to say, how do you make this meaningful? And I think if you teach people how to keep themselves safe and how to keep their family safe and how to keep their kids safe, maybe they'll take that skill set and bring it back to the office. Maybe. Yep. Right. I agree. Well, Scott, I appreciate your time. I'm going to guess that within I'm going to predict within a month or two, we will come back on and talk about the latest ransomware, data breach, whatever issues going on, because something's going to overtake Colonial Pipeline and be the sky is falling event of that particular month. So until then. um, And I just want to leave everyone with just one tip. Please just make me happy. Make sure that you have two-factor authentication on your personal email and make sure your elderly parents have that. And send me an email. Uh, Darren will post it in the show notes. It's scott at cybersecuremindset.com. And for your listeners, I will send you the two chapters in my book. One is about keeping your kids safe. And the other is keeping your elderly parents safe. Because that's so important to me. And, you know, just take that information and, you know, share it please. And and that to me would make me very happy. All right, Scott. Thank you, sir. Enjoy your evening up in Nashville. Thank you, Darren. So that's going to do it for episode 37 of the Cyber Guy podcast. I greatly appreciate you taking the time and effort to download and listen to my pontifications on the variety of cybersecurity issues facing us these days. And I want to thank Scott Augenbaum again for popping on to talk about Colonial Pipeline, business email compromise, and a host of other things that hopefully you found valuable. If you have questions for me, thoughts about this podcast or other topics for other podcasts, hit me at darren at thecyberguy.com. As you go through your week, understand that knowledge is protection. So as you understand the threats that are targeting you, you assess your risk overall, you can proceed wisely through your day, and hopefully keep the cyber bad guys away. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy your week.